You're listening to Selfish. This is where we bring self-care and bravery together to encourage you to follow your dreams. Here's your host, your favorite selfish enthusiast, Allie Hembree-Martin. We Were the Lucky Ones was Georgia Hunter's first book and spent over four months on the New York Times bestseller list. It has been translated into 15 languages and has been selected as a top pick by Harper's Bazaar, The New York Post, People Magazine, and Audible, among others. I can't wait for you to hear her rise to stardom. Georgia, thank you so much for talking with me today. I'm so excited to have you on the show. Oh, thank you, Allie. Thanks for having me. So first, tell us about yourself. Right. Well, I am a writer and a mother. Um, I live in a small town in coastal Connecticut, southeastern Connecticut called Rowayton that most people have never heard of. I had never heard of it until uh, we were kind of recruited here from by some of our uh, college friends who live here. Um, my husband Robert and I have two boys, seven and two, so we've got our hands full at the moment. <laughs> um, and my passion outside of family and writing and sort of being this family historian that we'll talk a little bit more about, um, I will say, is horses. So I have a very um, dear place in my heart for Louisville because that's where I go to ride as much <laughs> as I possibly can. It's my home away from home and all my horse friends are there. Um, so I'd say that's me in a nutshell. <laughs> I love that connection of Louisville. Whenever I mention I'm from Kentucky and I'm talking with someone outside of Kentucky, if they do have that horse connection, that's where we can bring it back to. So I love that. And I love that about Kentucky because it connects me to so many people. I know it really is. It's, it's the best. And it really like at my chance, my time in Louisville is just a complete heaven. It's a reset and I cherish it. I love that. <laughs> Okay, so share with us about the background behind your most recent book, which is We Were the Lucky Ones. Sure. So this book, you have to rewind a little bit to when I was 15 years old. Um, the, the book is based on my family history. It tells my grandfather's story. He's Addie, who you meet in chapter one. It follows Addie and his four siblings, his parents, a young niece, a family of Polish Jews as they scatter at the start of the Second World War on really a twofold mission, first to survive and second to reunite. Um, it's a story, however, that I had no idea existed until I was in high school when I got one of those assignments that a lot of us, I think, got um, to go and interview a relative to learn a little bit about our ancestry, about our roots. And my grandfather had passed away the year before, so I sat down with my grandmother, Caroline, who you also meet in the book at the sort of the tail end. And it was over the course of that hour that I learned that my grandfather came from a town in Poland called Rodham, that he was brought up Jewish, another piece of his history I never knew, and that he came from this big family of Holocaust survivors. Hmm. So that was at 15. You can imagine it's... Uh, a, a big shock, a discovery to make at that age. And I wasn't angry or resentful at all about it, but I was definitely curious. And I asked my sweet grandmother a million questions, and she was able to fill me in on my grandfather's piece of the story, which was that he was actually the only one of his siblings 
not living in Poland at the start of the war. He was in France, and he managed to get out of France um, on a ship that left Marseille, and eventually he ended up in Rio de Janeiro. And when he got there, he lost complete contact with a family back in Poland. And when I asked my grandmother about that family, because I knew enough in my Holocaust studies that the odds were severely against them, right? Mm. Um, I said, well, how did they survive? Like, what's their story? And she said, you know, I met your grandfather's family after the war. And like your grandfather, they didn't speak about that time very much. So fast forward a few years to the year 2000. I was 21. I just graduated from University of Virginia. And my mother hosted a family reunion. Um, so my mother is one of 10 first cousins on her father, my grandfather's side, and she invited them all to join us at this family reunion and they all immediately agreed to come and they flew in from Brazil and France, Israel, across the state. I think we were 32 at our peak with everybody there and I'll never forget that reunion, um, just the sheer fun and chaos of it. There were four languages being spoken almost at all times, wow. different kinds of food being prepared. You know, I met cousins I'd never met before. And then one night of that reunion, I wandered out back to the porch where my mother and her cousins, so these are second generation survivors, were sitting and telling stories about the war and about their parents. And I settled in and that's when I started getting these little snippets of the greater Kirk family story. The, the family's last name is Kirk. Um, you know, Jose was there, one of my mom's cousins, and talked about how he was born in the Siberian Gulag. And yet he had no idea why his parents had been sent there. He just knew he was born sometime in the dead of winter. And that's, he told this story, which I tale in the book, he, he said his mother told him when he was an infant, it was so cold in the gulag that he would wake with his eyes frozen shut and she would coax them Whoa. open with breast milk. Yeah. Um, imagine hearing this story at 21 years old sitting around a table. Um, another story told by another cousin about how his parents, Jacob and Bella, were married. They are, they'd been together for years and you know, in love, and they just couldn't wait any longer to get married at the start of the war. So they found a rabbi who was willing to come out of hiding and had this very illegal, very dangerous ceremony in a blacked out home in Lvov. Another cousin talked about how her mother, Helena, had hiked over the Austrian Alps to safety at the end of the war. Uh, she happened to be pregnant at the time. Um, so mm. the stories were just unbelievable to me, and they kept coming and coming. I remember sitting there thinking, how have I never heard these stories before? And how has no one taken the time to write them down? So I can't say that's when I knew I'd be that person to write them down, but mm -hmm. I think that's when the idea was seated at that reunion. And it would take me another eight years before I got the courage to put a stake in the ground and say, okay, this is something I want to do. I'm going to devote um, myself to unearthing and recording this piece of my family history. And I would imagine that the research process is a little tricky because um, sometimes people's memory isn't 100% and so you may hear conflicting stories. So share with us like what that research process was like and when you're gathering facts, like how do you know, okay, this is absolutely what happened versus maybe this person's memory isn't, you know, the story has changed as it's been passed down. Sure. Yeah, great question. So 
my first step in the research process was to collect as many oral histories as I could so to fly around the world and, and interview my relatives. Now, sadly, only one relative still lives who has firsthand memories of the war, and that's Felicia, my grandfather's niece, who was one year old at the start of the war. So mm-hmm. her childhood was consumed by the Holocaust. So, you know, her stories were horrific and heart-wrenching and I I had a very gentle approach in my interview with her because I was asking her essentially to relive those stories and so when you read those stories in the book like they are all verbatim from Felicia's mouth and I had children halfway through the process of writing this book and all of a sudden I was imagining myself as a mother uh, in her mother Mila's shoes, or even trying to imagine my children at age two and three and four and being asked to stay still for 10 hours a day under a table at a work factory or, you know, to dig her own grave and try to escape to say, you know, the stories are just mind blowing. And I still to this day, I can't imagine my mm-hmm. children in her shoes. So, so her memories were amazing. And firsthand, everybody else I interviewed, aside from people outside of the family, uh, were second-generation survivors. So they were sharing stories that their parents had passed down. So to your point, you know, they weren't verbatim. They weren't firsthand memories. And, and it's not that I got conflicting stories. I felt like I was scrounging for every little piece of information I could find. It's just that I, I got more vague details of then they were here at this point and there at that point. Or interestingly, I get stories told almost anecdotally, like, and then my father, Adam, you know, they were living in hiding or they were living with false IDs in Warsaw. And there was a moment where the landlord accused them of being Jewish. And my father thought to pretend to be uncircumcised. And there's a lot of laughter around that, right? So he had to drop his trousers to prove that he was not Jewish. And there's laughter. And, it's, and then I go to write that scene in the book and I realized that there was nothing funny in that moment, right? Mm-hmm. Like that moment where he's trying to prove that he's not Jewish was a life or death moment for him. So in a sense, my greater challenge after digging up the bones of the story, who was where and when and how was actually then translating it in a way that would feel real and feel more authentic to what those relatives were experiencing in the moment. And, and a lot of people ask why I decided to fictionalize the book, call it historical fiction instead of narrative nonfiction, which is like Unbroken and some of those other books that you've read. I, I just didn't feel confident putting words in their mouth, thoughts in their hearts, um, because again, I wasn't able to interview those survivors firsthand. It was all passed down. Mm-hmm. So I got, I got less conflicting information and more bits and pieces that then I, you know, had to weave together into a cohesive narrative. Mm-hmm. So, so that was the first step of the research. And then the second step was to also reach out to any ministry, archive, museum, magistrate that might have a digital record uh, that would be relative, relevant to my family's story. So... And that was unbelievable. That could be anything through the International Tracing Service, the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum in D.C., Yad Vashem in Israel. And I will say it was 
unbelievable how many records I was able to find. So I encourage anybody out there who's listening, if you're interested in researching your family history, just reach out. And I even have a page on my website devoted to ancestry search tips because you never know what you'd be able to find. Um, for me, I just, I felt like it was a treasure trove. I found through the Hoover Institution at Stanford University, a nine page account written in my great uncle Genick's hand. He's the father of Jose who was sent off to Siberia. And that was a big giant hole in the family story. No one really knew why or when or how or where they went. And, uh, and in this document in my great uncle Genick's hand, he describes exactly the day he and his wife Herta are arrested in Lvov, why they are arrested, where they are sent, the 45 day journey on the train, the name of the camp in Siberia, the day his son Jose is born. And then on to the next year of in the gulag, and then the year of an exodus once they leave the gulag to join the army. So it's just this like gold mine of information, not just for me personally and for the book, but to be able to hand that over to his two sons and sort yes. of that gap in our family history was amazing, right? So you just never know what you might find. So those are really the the two pieces of fact collecting that I embarked on. And then I did a lot of traveling in the footsteps of the family as well. It was really important for me to actually go to the places where they were, go to this town in Poland called Rodham where nobody, nobody returned. No, once they left Poland, they, no one had any interest in going back. Uh, so it was a very interesting experience going back very, um, chilling, but also grounding. Cause I could see for the first time, okay, this little town doesn't feel all that different from my hometown. And I could envision life for my family, for my great grandparents, Stella Nahuma, and why they decided to live there and why they didn't leave the second the threat of war came about um, because it just it felt livable. It felt like this small community. And I was so glad I was there. And then I traveled through Poland and Czech Republic and into Austria and down the coast of Italy following sort of in their, in their footsteps, which was a very very moving experience. I mean, you invested in the research and understanding when you went into this book. And that blows me away because it was your first book. So this was your yeah. first experience. But it was the book has been translated into 15 languages. And it spent over four months on the New York Times bestseller list. Did you have any idea it was going to have this type of success? But even thinking about the effort you put into this. I mean, you you put everything you had into this book. I did, and no, to answer your question, I had no idea, and I think that's a good thing. I set off to tell the family history, to honor my grandfather, his siblings, and to put their stories on paper so they'd be preserved for their sake and also for the sake of future generations so that my kids and their kids and their kids and so on someday could pick it up and not just read about this time that I think we all look back on the Holocaust and really almost any time in history as very black and white. There are a lot of statistics that are impossible to wrap your mind around and to tell the story in a very human, very personal way so that you can really step into their shoes and hearts and minds and understand what it might have been like to be that person and staying one step ahead, trying everything in their power to stay alive. So that was really the goal. And, uh, and I, I have just been completely blown away by, by how well it's been received, by how it's resonating with 
young readers, um, historians, survivors, just across the globe. I get emails all the time to my Facebook or Instagram accounts, just people sharing how and why they connected with the story. So it's just been remarkable. <laughs> so before this, you previously worked as a copywriter and a brand strategist in the travel industry. So I'm curious, were there things that you learned in those roles that helped you then move on to writing the book? Sure. Yeah, I think first and foremost, so it's a different kind of writing. So a copywriter, you're writing materials that people, so I might write the copy for a catalog that you get in the mail that describes trips that you might take with a small group in the adventure travel world. So, you know, rafting in Costa Rica or a safari in Africa. But there is something said for, you know, immersing readers in a setting. And I think setting is really important, especially in historical fiction, because that's what paints the backdrop for readers to be able to step into that world, right, and feel like they're there. So for me, um, I probably honed that skill in my travel writing days, which, which I'm still doing. I love that piece of my um, my work. But to be able to write a scene where a reader's not feeling like they're reading about a place, but that they're there, if that makes mm-hmm. sense, with their toes in the sand, or in the case of Jose, right, in the thick of a Siberian winter and the dirt floor of a gulag, you know. And so I think for me, the big benefit of the travel writing was in how to create the, the perfect setting. I, I love when pieces like that really help the narrative of someone's story and, and the journey you were meant to be on. I think that's a really cool connection. Yeah, me too. So what is something that might surprise the listeners about the book publishing world? I find that there's little things that I've picked up from others that are going through um, publishing a book uh, that they tell me, and I'm just blown away because I think as a reader, we don't necessarily know or understand what that industry does on the back end to get us the books that we love and cherish. (laughs) There's so much involved. I know as a first time author, I'm still learning. I think for me, the most interesting takeaway from all of this is just how very personal the publishing world is. So when I first wrote my book, I kept it very close for a very, very long time. And finally, I shared it with three people, my mother, my husband, and a dear friend. And they're very sweet. And they gave me nice feedback. And then I figured, okay, well, they have to be nice to me, right? (laughs) (laughs) It's their story too. And so I, I finally reached out to a an editor, freelance editor, on my own dime and thought, okay, I'll see what somebody thinks of it who doesn't know anything about me or my story. And if she likes it, then maybe I'd go to the traditional publishing route. And sure enough, she had incredible feedback, but she also loved it. And she said, and this is where I got lucky, she said, I feel like I know a couple of agents who are just waiting for a story like this to come across their plate. And she offered to reach out to them on my behalf. So she knew exactly, my agent, that she had connections to the Holocaust, that she was waiting for this sort of big family saga of a story to come across her plate. And sure enough, she, you know, we, we reached out to several agents and several wanted to read the manuscript. And my agent, Brittany Bloom, um, I always equate it to the voice. She like hit her button like the first second she read <laughs> it and had me into the city to meet with her like the next day. And we've been, you know, amazing partners ever since. But it just resonated with her. And if you think about it, 
it's very personal. Every book out there is very personal, nonfiction to fiction. And the same thing happened with the editing experience where my agent knew exactly the editors, sometimes multiple editors within the same publishing house to send the book to once we'd edited it ourselves and honed it and gotten it to a really great place. Um, so that, you know, she knew the people again, who might have a grandmother who's a Holocaust survivor or some particular connection to the story itself. So for me, that was a bit, it was pretty eye-opening just to realize that this, it feels daunting and that, you know, you have a proposal and the slush pile and all these things you hear about finding an agent, but then you realize they're just people like us who have very specific interests. So it's all about sort of your work landing in the hands of the right person, I guess. Good timing and just it all falling into place when it's supposed to. Yeah, I, I, I think so. And it is hard. I mean, it's very hard for authors, especially first-time authors, to get their work into the hands of the right people. But I do think um, it's worth making every effort to find out as much as you can, if you're one of those first-time authors, as much as you possibly can about these agents or editors or wherever you're pitching your work to make it personal, to find that connection. So, speaking of connection, I hear there may be a TV show in the works based on your book. Can you yes. confirm or deny this? <laughs> there may be confirmed. Um, yeah, it, that whole piece is completely surreal still. Um, I was approached maybe six months ago by a friend, actually, who happens to be a very successful director and producer. His name is Thomas Kale. He grew up going to camp with my husband. So like, like wow, when they were wow. little guys. So I met him maybe at 19. My husband and I have been together for a while. So I met him at 19. We were fast friends. You know, he spoke at our wedding and then he worked his way up in the industry to the point where he directed um, or still directs Hamilton, which is I'm sure most oh, of your listeners yeah. have heard of. And he just did Fosse Verdon on FX. He's done a lot of TV work since. And he approached me and said, listen, I loved your book. I'm at the place in my career where I can pick and choose what I want to do next. And this is what I want to do next. And I was just blown away. I just, I figured maybe he was just being nice, but sure enough, we partnered up and we found the perfect screenwriter. We wrote a pitch. We flew out to LA. So the ball's rolling. We've, we've got it out to the networks. And now I'm just kind of in that wait and see phase and I'm not obsessing over it because it was never in my vision. <laughs> so it just seems like this extra big perk that if it happens, it happens. It'll be a new life for we were the lucky ones. And how amazing to be able to work with Tommy and this team that he's put together because it's it is a very personal story. It's my story in so many ways. It's my grandfather's story. And I can't imagine handing it over to someone I don't trust and love. <laughs> And you just never know what's going to happen. But with Tommy sort of at the helm and being able to work with him, this incre incredible screenwriter, I feel so lucky. And I'm just trying to pinch myself and take it all in. <laughs> Georgia, that's amazing. I mean, that to me just reiterates that you were so authentic with this journey that those things do come back when, when people are um, open to them, but also are being very genuine, then, you know, it, it all just falls into place the way it's supposed to. Yeah, I can't imagine doing it any other way. And kind of back to my point about, you know, my manuscript landing in the hands of the perfect agent and the perfect editor. I think that if that happens with this pitch landing in the perfect hands, 
great. That's how it has to happen in a way. If somebody's like, mm, I don't know, maybe not, then let's not do it. <laughs> you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, I, I'm going to wait and see if that, it's been a passion project for me all along. If somebody comes across it and says, oh my gosh, we have to do this, then we'll do it and it'll be amazing. And if not, then it was really fun to go to LA and talk to HBO Netflix <laughs> for a couple of days. Wow. <laughs> So this show is all about breaking down the stigma of being selfish is a negative and rather uh, practicing self-care to better ourselves and those around us. So what are your favorite ways to be selfish? I love that, by the way. And I think it's so important. It's so important. And it gets it does have a stigma or maybe finding time for yourself is just so often overlooked or pushed aside. So for me, it's exactly that. It's carving out time to do the things I love that help me to feel fulfilled and to sort of reset so that when it comes to my work, my family, all my roles, those hats that working moms play, like I can put my all into it. So horses, number one, (laughs) Um, finding time to get to Kentucky, to go ride, to be at the barn, to be with my girlfriends. Um, But then the little things, also just time to do yoga or a half hour on the Peloton bike or a long walk with my mother who, lucky for me, lives down the street. Um, All those things that are so easy to just say like, I'll do it tomorrow or I don't need to, I I should prioritize my to-do list. I just think making time for yourself and knowing knowing what will help you feel grounded and sort of feel that feel refreshed afterwards feel reset i also am a big fan of meditation and finding even 15 minutes of quiet time in the day is nearly impossible but i've been setting my alarm a little bit earlier and trying to make time to do that i have a little um, gratitude journal so i do those two things in the morning and i really feel like when i do those things it gives me a whole different outlook on the day. (laughs) I can tackle everything with a little bit more ease. So I hope that answers your question, but I feel like it's really finding time to do the things you love. I love that. Yeah. And there, there is something about, um, when you are able to take time to do those, you feel so much better mentally spiritually. Like you're able to just charge on with your day, feeling really good about taking that time out for yourself. So I agree with that. Yeah, absolutely. Is there anything you wish you could be doing more? <laughs> All of the above. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. No, um, no, I am good about making time, even if it's a little half hour here or there. Um, I would say probably the one thing I wish I had just infinite time for was reading. I, I, you know, that's my world and I love reading. And before kids, I did, I had a lot more time to do that. So I read before bed and I'm trying to carve out time during the day to read. Right now my reading is heavy, heavily focused on research for my next book. But um, I think just even spending time with the Sunday newspaper, like it's just such a luxury. I feel like it's a luxury. And for me, that would be one thing I wish I could do more of um, because I feel like I'm, again, one of your typical working moms trying to balance it all. And um, and I try to choose the things that I feel like will make me feel better about myself, but also that I might say, well, I'll remember this more. So on the flip side of being finding time for myself to read, if I'm given the chance to, you know, take my two-year-old to a music class or my seven-year-old on a trip into the city to go to a museum 
as opposed to sort of chipping away on a deadline, which is what I could be, should be doing, I'll sometimes ask myself the question, what will I remember more? And what will my kids remember more? Um, a few hours at my desk or, you know, the look on my son's face when he sings the train song, his favorite song in music class, or goes to the color factory in New York and his mind is just blown. And, and so that'll mean making up some of those hours missed on my deadline. But I try, I do try to prioritize those things. And I, I will say I, I want to continue doing more of those things that really make a difference in that we will remember at the end of the week or the month when you look back, right? That's a great reminder. I I often think about kind of that year-end recap, if you look back on the year, like the highlights from each month. And I think that's a really good lesson and um, something we can all remember because um, you know what is going to stand out when you when you do that yearly highlight um, those those extra hours in the office aren't going to stand out or aren't going to be memorable so that's a, that's a great one yeah I agree <laughs> so you alluded to your next book so I will ask what is next for Georgia so I am working on a second book which approaching it feels very new and different in a way because like I said, the first really was a passion project, a family uh, calling, if you will. It, I, it was never an obligation. It's just something I knew I wanted to do and sort of had to do. This is, you know, the Penguin Random House. My publisher said, okay, well, what's next? <laughs> and I thought, oh, I guess I'm an author now. I need, to, I need to think about that. So I took a long time to think about it because I realized that what made we were the lucky ones so special for me was that I had a deep personal connection with it, right? Um, So I couldn't imagine just writing pure fiction, just something completely I had no connection to, you know? So I Mm -hmm. spent a long time thinking and ended up landing on a story that will also be set in World War II, Holocaust-era Europe. It'll be historical fiction. It'll have two storylines. One will be set in the past, told from a young woman's perspective, and that one will really be about friendship and motherhood and survival. And then there'll be a second storyline set more modern day, told from a granddaughter's perspective, who's at a crossroads in life, who spends a month with her grandmother on her island home somewhere off the coast of New England and comes to learn the truth about her family's origins this life-changing secret will be revealed. And so the two stories will weave kind of in and out of each other. And obviously I'll be able to write from my own perspective as the granddaughter learning about her grandparents' past. And I also am feeling very excited about writing about Italy where I want to set the backstory because I did my semester abroad in Italy. My parents met in Italy. I have a close connection to Italy. And I feel like it's a piece of the Holocaust that's a little more gray area there, a little less black and white than what was happening in Poland and in Germany, say, other parts of Eastern Europe, where the history is very layered and complex. I don't think readers will come into it knowing as much about it. So I hope it's a way to sort of enlighten readers about what was happening and also to tell another story about some very strong female protagonists um, and that are facing challenges as great as survival um, and also in life, um, some of the more everyday challenges that we face today that I can personally relate to. So I'm really excited to write about that because my first book obviously was set completely in the past and 
while I connected to it, it was my family story. I wasn't in any part of it. You know, it wasn't my story. I could not relate to living in Siberia or hiking down the coast of Italy. You know, I, I wasn't there to experience it. So this will be the first time that I can write from my own heart and from my own personal experiences, which I think will be very rewarding. I am excited about this. What <laughs> do you have a potential or approximate um, release date? Right now, it's in about a year and a half to two years. So, clock ticking. Oh <laughs> that's my another gosh. thing. That's, that's another thing. That's an adjustment. Is the first book took nine years from start to finish, and granted you know, it was never, um, my agent came in at the end and my editor at the end. So that's when my deadlines started coming across my plate, but this is going to be a bit more, um, I'll have to be a bit more rigorous in my, my research and my writing. So off we go. (laughs) Well, I am so excited to see this book come to fruition and really just see the continued success from we were the lucky ones. So Georgia, thank you so much for talking with me. I'm just really interested and um, loved hearing your background of becoming a New York Times bestselling author. And uh, so thank you for sharing your story with us. Oh, Allie, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Like what you just heard? Visit us at SelfishThePodcast.com. Subscribe and leave a review on iTunes today.